Welcome to the Investigation Game Podcast, brought to you by Workman Forensics. She's a CPA and a CFE who uses her knowledge and experience to help people. She began her forensic career in Colorado's 4th Judicial District Attorney's Office as a volunteer. After two and a half years, they created a paid position for her as an investigative financial analyst. While there, she worked closely with the attorneys in the Economic Crimes Division on cases dealing with embezzlement, contractor fraud, and other financial investigations. She also assisted in the prosecution of two retail theft rings and with the financial pieces in other types of cases. In 2018, she left the DA's office to open her own forensic accounting firm. Her focus today is about raising fraud awareness, educating about fraud prevention, and helping small business owners that are victims of employee embezzlement. Thank you for joining me today, Robin. Yes. So one of the things I noticed and really loved about your bio when I was putting that uh, the intro together is that you started off in the area of fraud investigation by volunteering at a district attorney's office. So will you tell me more about this? Like, how were you able to volunteer with them? I mean, how did that even come about? And then what did your volunteer work there entail? Okay. Uh, well, it's actually kind of a, a long process, and it, it began back when I was in uh, college in my auditing class. We had a certified fraud examiner come and present, and he talked about all sorts of careers related to uh, fraud fighting and whatnot, and he mentioned forensic accounting. So I decided that's what I wanted to do. So I graduated, and I worked in public accounting, but I really didn't have a lot of forensic experience and whatnot, and the forensic partners told me that I needed to build up my skills. So fast forward several years, I was working in the auditor's office for the city of Colorado Springs, and I attended a uh, presentation put on by the district attorney's office. Uh, And at the end of their presentation, they they mentioned that, oh, we take volunteers. So I thought, wow, that's something I want to look into. So I looked into it, And uh, I applied and I got accepted. Uh, I had been a CFE since 2011. And so that was in 2012 that I started volunteering. And the district attorney's office, the fourth judicial district, covers two counties. And it's the largest in the state because of that. But it's got the smallest budget in the state. So they use a lot of their uh, volunteers for tasks like filing or putting bank information into spreadsheets and and whatnot. So I started by doing that. But because I was a CFE, I was able to do some analysis and answer some questions that the attorneys had, which before, you know, a lot of the volunteers were helpful, but they weren't CFEs, so they didn't know what they're looking for. So it kind of worked into a a bigger position because of that. Uh, I was able to help answer questions. And actually, uh, the case we'll discuss later on, I was a volunteer at the time um, because I had, you know, started with the office and the attorney recognized that, hey, uh, there's some skills that you can help with this case. So that's kind of how that that worked out. That's awesome. Yeah. I um, So my staff and I volunteer with the Tulsa Police Department. They have a financial crimes unit and people are normally surprised that there's volunteer opportunities at the state level, but they're definitely, I, I mean, you have experience with that. I have experience with that. Uh, the area that I haven't, um, I had kind of looked into volunteering, but the federal level is a little different. They, they don't really have volunteer opportunities there, but I, th- I think it's a great way to just get to, you know, my, when I first started volunteering for T- uh, Tulsa police department, I just wanted, I mean, I was working my own cases, but I wanted to see more. I knew if I could see more cases, then I could get more efficient. And so, 
you know, they, they were more than happy to have my help. So, and now the only cases we do pro bono are those that come through law enforcement, um, just for lots of reasons. But uh, anyway, plus I, I think they get, you know, a lot of interesting, interesting cases that we wouldn't necessarily get to work when we have to charge a fee. So I think it, it makes it a little more diverse, especially the case we're going to talk about yes. of yours. So, <laughs> okay. But before we get into that, how did the volunteer work ultimately turn into a job? Well, um, I've been there for two and a half years and, you know, I was working full time at the same time. So basically I worked at the auditor's office and then took my lunch and went over to the DA's office because they're both in downtown Colorado Springs. And a big case had come along. It was a, another embezzlement case. Um, and they asked me, can you volunteer more? <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry, I can't. I'm only, you know, one person I need to eat and sleep and stuff like that. <laughs> right. So, fair, uh, fair. <laughs> yeah. So uh, they looked into their uh, their budget and they did some uh, moving stuff around. So they made me an investigative financial analyst. So they offered me the position and I was like, well, yes, I want to do this. Um, I like auditing, but I like this more. <laughs> sure. So so I went over and, and did that because of it. Um, it was a high profile case and they really, they needed it to move forward a lot faster. It did take a long time to investigate, but that was because most of the time I was a volunteer. But once I was full time, we moved it along. Yeah, awesome. So you had worked in public accounting prior to this and then the auditor's office. Um, and so what area did you work in at, uh, in public accounting? Um, well, in public accounting, I did a little in taxes and that's why I learned that I do not like taxes. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it was a, a hard thing. Um, a customer threw their uh, tax return at me and it wasn't, you know, just a little 1040 easy. It was a big file. <laughs> so I was oh, like, no, were they just it's mad not, that they owed money? Yes. And oh. unfortunately it was a, a misunderstanding. They hadn't communicated everything they should have and it worked out oh. in the end, but still, I was like, I, I don't want to be in that position. So <laughs> I went into auditing. Um, I really enjoyed the investigation, but I really struggled with the issues that re uh, regular auditors have, scope and materiality, <laughs> because I wanted to go down that rabbit hole and figure out why this happened, or I wanted yep. to know why somebody is doing it, not just fix the problem after, but identify the problem so you can fix it. Yes, I have struggled with the same. I did some work for our state auditor's office uh, because I wanted some audit experience because I had tax experience, but nobody ever threw their tax return at me. So I, 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 I hung in there for several years um, doing tax. But uh, yeah, in working for the state auditor's office, I did. I, I It took me a little while and I, I hope auditors listening to this don't get upset with my, but this is how it, how I had to think about audits so that I wouldn't do that. I had to think about it as a teacher grading a paper instead of someone like a mentor helping someone, you know? Uh, and that was really difficult for me. So I did that in addition to work with forensics for about nine months and said, I'm done. I get it. I get it. Um, so having worked in this field with law enforcement is a really different perspective for like a lot of the fraud investigators we've had on the show. And I feel like that's something that you and I both have in common because I've worked with law enforcement and then also from the private sector. So I'd like to talk about that a little bit. Um, 
what are some things that you feel like you learned by working with law enforcement that you maybe wouldn't have learned like from, you know, private, private sector, do you know? Um, a lot of the, uh, investigation skills that go beyond what an auditor does. Um, a lot of interviewing skills. I got to watch other interviews while in the office. And so that was fascinating. They weren't always related to my cases, but, um, I enjoyed that. Uh, I enjoyed learning about the, the process of how something moves through the investigation at the police department or the sheriff's office and then how it goes to the district attorneys and then how they prosecute it and how it moves on um, through like uh, the court system after that. Um, there was, yeah, I, there was a lot of uh, interesting people and mostly it was, it was hard dealing with all the skeptics. Everybody tries to maintain a positive look outlook on people, but it's hard sometimes. You don't want to always think the worst of people, but I like to still think the best of people, even though some of the people I worked with didn't. Yeah. I mean, it is hard because it's like a hundred percent of your sample of the population is doing stuff they shouldn't be doing. So I, I think that's, it's, it's difficult. I definitely saw that in my experience as well. It was, it was definitely difficult to maintain a positive ad attitude or like, I don't know, I would kind of wonder, does anybody do this right? <laughs> you know, does anybody care about like being a decent human being? Um, and you mentioned that about watching interviews. I've done that at uh, the police department. And yeah, it's usually not about financial crime stuff, you know, but I would just see these interviews going on. And I just have to say, I am always amazed or, or when I was there, I was always amazed by just how comfortable the police officers were talking to people who may not even be in their right minds or are high on something or something really traumatic had just happened, you know, and they're having to like, I don't know, the interviews I watched and they're all recorded at Tulsa at TPD. And so the ones that I watched, it was just really amazing to see they know this terrible thing this person did, but like they treated them with such dignity. I just, um, that was pretty amazing. I know that that maybe not everybody's experience, but I just remember thinking in the interviews, like, wow, I don't, that just takes a lot of patience Yeah, and, and to sit there and go round and round with them. They're very good at what they do. Yes. Very. And, uh, you know, and like kind of being in that detective, uh, office space, um, a lot of them have done a lot of inter interview training and getting to watch them, which we don't do that a lot in, in our practice. Exactly. You know, yeah. We're looking at the numbers. Yeah, I don't know about the you. Paper, the, the data. Right. Right. So um, what are you, what do you think are some things that maybe law enforcement could learn from forensic accounting or fraud investigation professionals that might help make their investigation simpler or more efficient, maybe more enjoyable? <laughs> I, I think it would be helpful for them to have access to certain tools to make their lives easier because they're very good at what they do, but they're usually generalists where they, they do every kind of case. Even if they do just financial crimes, sometimes they get pulled off on other cases. But by having a tool to like go through the, the bank statements to OCR or optical character recognize them, the data to put it into a spreadsheet so they can analyze it a lot faster would help them. So maybe the case wouldn't sit so long on the desk where they, oh, I don't want to touch that. You know, it's huge. 
but having a tool would help him get, get through it faster and help it move along in the course system. Yeah, for sure. Is there a particular tool you use to do that? To OCR that you'll talk about? If it's proprietary, that's fine. I'll share ours. Oh, no, um, I, I use OmniPage and BankScan. Okay. Um, I discovered BankScan back at, uh, when I was at the DA's office, I went to one of the fraud conferences and I learned about all the other companies that, that offer software like that. And I had done some research and we weren't really able to afford that. So I found another alternative and that was BankScan. They still weren't able to afford it, but now as my own own firm owner, I can use BankScan and I love it. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, I know that um, BankScan does work a lot with law enforcement. Um, I know we use it at the state. Uh, I don't know about Tulsa Police, but um, and then in our in at Workman Forensics, we use Money Thumb, and I really like Money Thumb. But okay, so question for you: This was not prepared, so I apologize in advance, but. For your check pays, <clears throat> have you found anything that helps make that more efficient, entering check pays, or do you still have to do that by hand or have somebody do that by hand? Well, BankScan has a derivative called FileScan. I haven't used it yet, but it's something similar to be able to identify the pays on the checks. I don't know how, how well that works, especially with uh, some of the handwriting I've seen. Uh, right. The, that's, that's our problem. The only thing I've ever found that was really lucky and by accident um well actually that wasn't in there either. i was thinking of the the dat files from wells fargo those are pretty awesome but those don't include checks either so um, actually the answer would be no <laughs> i don't, I don't okay. have anything other than trying to to read them yourself and sometimes that's difficult when you have somebody that has really bad handwriting <laughs> or you have really poor quality images yeah yeah, for sure. We had a case a couple of years ago and the, it was a elder exploitation and the lady was in her nineties. She was like 95 years old and she still hand wrote all of her checks. And so I remember my team, we had several people entering her uh, different accounts and they're like, we can't read these. But our data processing specialist, who's been with me about five years, she could interpret them. So bless her heart. She was tasked with entering all those payees. Um, but I remember those were like really difficult, but I'm, I'm still on the lookout. So if anybody listening knows of anything that will help read, I mean, even just, um, like printed checks, I mean, I'll take the hand. Okay, fine. Handwriting one's fine, but like something that'll read those handwritten, I mean, the printed checks that would just save a lot of time, but maybe I'll have to look into bank scan. Cause they offer remote deposit now, a lot of banks, somehow they're doing it where they can at least figure out the amount when it's typed in and sometimes handwritten. So I don't know. There's something out there that has to be. I would love to know too. I found a software a few years ago that claimed that they could do that. But then whenever I started asking for pricing, it was like $150,000. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, um, I don't think so. Thanks. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Yeah, that was just a little much. But um, are there any other tools or techniques or resources that you use that you think are helpful in your investigations? Nothing comes. Uh, nothing comes to mind. Do you do a lot of your work in Excel? I do. Yeah, that's the go-to. I know that that was because of uh, my experience in the DA's office. I did everything by hand. Well, 
sometimes I was lucky and I could get the software to OCR it correctly, but most times it was faster just to hand enter it and then put checks and balances in to make sure I did it right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Excel is very low cost. Uh, I I would live in Excel if I could. Right. Right. (laughs) So with your experience, do people ask you the question, you know, because I get this a lot from clients, but do they ask you like, why are white collar cases not prosecuted or a high priority? So, and, and if they do, what do you tell them? So I would start by telling them that uh, white collar crimes are never considered a low priority. Sometimes these cases are difficult to prosecute because they involve a high volume of information and it takes time to go through them. It's not like a two week, you know, go through and you're done. Sometimes they involve complex accounting and business concepts that are difficult to understand. So the detectives might take a little longer to understand it. Uh, Also, an office, either a a police department, a sheriff's office, or a district attorney's office, they only have so many resources and they have to allocate them on the cases that make the biggest impact. Now, not, not meaning that it's biggest dollar amount, but biggest impact. So you might have a Uh, contractor fraud case that there's, you know, 15 different victims and each one of them lost only a thousand dollars. So really it's only a $15,000 case, but there's a lot of victims. So this makes a really big impact to prosecute a case like this, you know, and it could be, you know, one, one case where there's, you know, high dollar amount and those are nice too. They like to prosecute those, but they do what they can with what they have. And I have to tell people that, you know, I will do my best with what's provided. Yeah, it, it's in my experience as well. I, I love how you word that, that it's not that it's not a priority or, but you're right. Just all of the time delays and uh, in what you explained and um, yeah, totally, totally get it. So what about the clients who um, whenever they discover that employees stealing from them and they just want them arrested and put in jail. What do you tell them? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to say that not everybody wants to put them in jail, which is surprising to me because that's my first reaction. Like send them to jail. Some religious organizations or charities just want their money back. And so they feel that if you put them in jail, they're not going to pay me. That's not really how it works. And and as far as, you know, arresting them and putting them in jail, again, like I said, it's a long process to get through the case, but uh, a criminal case is a little different than civil because they have a a different standard. They have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. So they have to make sure all the ducks are in the row for your case before they can send it to jail. And the other uh, complication is that a judge's job is to make the victim whole again. And so by seeing, seeing that, making them whole again would make, their, make them have their money back. That's what the issue is. So they feel that sending them to jail, well, the defendant can't pay you your money back. So they hesitate to put them in jail because of that. Now, both you and I know that rarely does the defendant have the money right. to pay the victim back. So that that's a hard thing for the victim to wrap their head around. I do tell them that, you know, you can help your case by providing the information in an organized format 
you know, that, that helps save time so the detective doesn't have to go through the, the huge box of whatever and try to find whatever. You can pull out key items and maybe offer a, a timeline of the case. What happened? That will help them uh, understand it and be able to work your cases. Yeah, and I'm sure that that's where you come into play and create so much value is helping put that together. And especially since you know what law enforcement's looking for. I know that's been valuable for us too, uh, or for our clients. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. I, because of this dilemma, you want the victims want the person who's stolen to pay and who's stolen from them to pay. And then the, but then at the same time, if you put them in jail, they can't make money to pay it back. And the whole restitution thing, you know, are you going to get like pennies for the rest of their lives or whatever? And um, so there's a local nonprofit in Tulsa that is actually for substance abuse and and so forth uh for men but they work to like to work through their um addiction and substance abuse issues and the court will actually sentence them to this if they choose if they but they have to self-admit but still you know that way they're not going to prison for substance abuse anyway it's been really helpful i used to serve on their board and uh, so it, it did. I remember a few years ago when I was still serving on the board, I thought, I wonder if there's a way that we could like harness this idea for white collar criminals, you know, for those embezzlers where maybe they can serve their sentence by also working and then, the you know, for this nonprofit and then the proceeds could go back to the victims. I haven't made it very far on that idea, but that's something, you know, just throw that out there. Now, do I think that they would choose to go work instead of going to jail as their sentence? I don't know. But um, anyway, maybe for like a reduced sentence or something. Because, you know, at the end of the day, I don't know. I think if you're right, do the victims want them to have a criminal record or do they want their money back? I don't know. So anyway, I, I think there's a solution out there for this. I just, you know, haven't really put a whole lot of time to that idea. But all right, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. At Workman Forensics, we're your modern day Sherlock Holmes. The team at Workman Forensics follows patterns to find money through forensic accounting and fraud investigation services. Using our data sleuth process, we build client cases telling the story of what actually happened. This process serves clients in the best way, whether they are going through a divorce, a partnership dispute, an estate and trust dispute, or a fraud investigation. So what is data sleuthing? Well, after serving clients in this best way for 10 years, we are proud of our technological improvements, making our investigations work similar to that of a manufacturing process. By following a consistent investigative and internal process, our team addresses client concerns in a timely, responsive, and thorough manner. But don't worry, clients don't go through this process alone. We believe communication is vital to the success of an engagement. So each client is guided by a highly trained and specialized expert forensic accountant along the way. And because we think data sleuthing is the best way to investigate financial disputes, we work to train other professionals as well through our investigation games, guided interactive workshops, and our Be A Data Sleuth seminars. To learn more about any of these services or trainings, visit our website, workmanforensics.com. In fact, our website is full of resources for anyone looking to learn more about forensic accounting, fraud investigation, or our data sleuth process. This includes blog posts, free Excel downloads, more podcast episodes, and links to our YouTube channel. So if you're looking to get into the investigation industry, or if you've been an investigator for years, we know you'll find something helpful in our free resources. So visit our website, workmanforensics.com. 
Welcome back to my interview with Robin Shaw. Robin, in preparing for this episode, you mentioned that you worked a large case for the DA's office uh, that involved a lot of tracing. So first, do you want to, uh, well, I want to hear the story. I want you to share the story, but also maybe just for people who have never had to trace a bunch of money, you just kind of want to explain what that concept is. Sure. Um, well, this uh, case happened early on in my career at the district attorney's office. It was 2005 through 2013, about June or something like that. Um, it was a retail theft ring, and the case was called Just Computers. And uh, let's see, it was the first of its kind in Colorado. We hadn't really dealt with anything that big or a process like this. So it involved five defendants, and um, they actually had to break up the trials because our courtroom wasn't big enough for all five defendants and their attorneys and all the paperwork and all that good stuff. <laughs> so uh, the trials actually happened. Three of the defendants went to trial in December of 13, and the other two were in January 14, just to get an idea of the, the time frame. So Just Computers was a repair store uh, that repaired computers, but it wasn't really. Yeah. So that was their, their sign, and that was what they supposedly did. But what it actually was was a fence, or they bought stolen property and then sold it. So drug addicts or those needing cash would steal things from stores in the area, some of the big box stores or uh, stores that didn't have very good security. So these people are called boosters. So the boosters would take the stolen items to just computers, or they would return the stolen items to the stores um, and get gift cards because stores were not giving out cash at that time without a receipt. So then the boosters would take these gift cards to just computers as well. So just computers would buy all these items for cash and then they would list it on eBay and then they would take the sale proceeds from those items and move it to their PayPal account. And from PayPal, they would transfer the money to their bank account. And then they would go to the ATMs, withdraw the cash, and their process would go around and around. So when they issued a search warrant for the stores, uh, it was kind of interesting, the store and the homes, they found them stuffed with all these stolen items and gift cards and then shipping labels. Uh, one of the defendants actually had been living in the store for some reason, I guess, to keep an eye on everything. But they, they were being so successful that they had nowhere to put everything. They had so much stuff that came out of there. Uh, Safeway actually donated a semi-trailer tractor uh, to hold everything. Oh, my God. And the attorneys had to develop a, a color coding system to keep track of where everything came from because it was key in, you know, chain of custody keeping track of, you know, where it came from and who, who it went to. They ended up uh, having to have many accounts, PayPal accounts, because there were so many defendants and so much activity. <laughs> they couldn't just have one guy doing everything. Um, so I, I, I try not to jump around, but as I dive into it now, uh, the records, what uh, got me involved in my, my small part of the case uh, was the tracing, like, like uh, you said earlier. The detectives and all that, they did a lot of hard work and they did you know investigative interviews and all that good stuff. But I took the, the records and then I, I traced things through. So the records involved you know bank records, PayPal records, eBay records, Plastic Jungle Records, which is a online card sales service. Hmm. Uh, 
It involved UPS labels, U.S. Postal Service labels, and cell phone text messages, which were tons of fun. So in all, there were probably about 40,000 lines of data that I had to go through in those records. So taking the bank records and identifying, actually the bank records would be the ends. So starting with the eBay records, I was able to identify the items from the stores through uh, ID numbers and tags and, and stuff. And then from eBay, eBay would assign a tracking number to it. And if the item was sold, it would also have a ship to address and the name and, and such. So I was able to trace the labels, either the UPS or the USPS labels to the items on eBay. So it originated from just computers and it was sold on eBay. So the ID number in eBay would go to PayPal. And then I could see the funds and the PayPal. So it tied those two. Now tying PayPal directly to the bank was a little more tricky, but because I could see that, say there were $10,000 in PayPal sales and they tr transferred at 9,500, I was pretty sure that that was the stolen funds because there weren't any legitimate funds going through there. Right. <laughs> and then just uh, seeing the, the bank records, seeing the money from PayPal come in and seeing the ATM withdrawals come out. You know, assisted with this is we had a undercover uh, agent, operative, whatever you want to call him. Um, he had some items that were donated to him by a couple of the stores, and they had serial numbers, and he actually sold them for cash to these guys. And so then I traced that, that item, those items through. So I saw the shipping label, and I saw where it went, and I saw it being listed in eBay and sold, and then I saw the funds. And it went around. And so it was very helpful to the attorney to be able to prove, you know, what was going on. So these uh, defendants were charged with various things from money laundering to theft to uh, criminal or computer crimes. And then the overall COCA statute, which is similar to the RICO statute, uh, the National uh, Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act but in, only for Colorado. So they had to, to meet several of these little charges to meet the big charge. Two of the five defendants actually appealed their convictions under COCA, um, which is the Colorado version of RICO, which is the Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act. So they brought it before the Colorado Court of Appeals, and the defendant said that the people failed to establish their design element in money laundering. So uh, they used, the Court of Appeals used my testimony to show that there was money laundering, the tracing of the funds and how it went through the process. Okay, so um, I, I'm always curious how these cases like come to light. How was it discovered that this just computers business was a fence and, you know, all of that? Like, do you know if retailers reported like that they had had significant theft or, or how, how did it? Well, it was initially discovered um, in, in an unrelated arrest. Um, somebody was arrested and they sang like a canary or whatever. You want to say. <laughs> and, and they mentioned that, you know, they would sell it. I think it was a drug case. They would sell stuff to this just computers to get cash to go buy drugs. And so they, they heard that. So it kind of put their, their radar up. 
And then they heard a couple more people once they were arrested talk about this. So they thought we should look into it. So they began looking into it and they realized that, oh, these stolen items are going here. So then they approached the retail establishments. So like a Home Depot didn't know that Safeway was suffering the same problem or what other big store. And so then they all got together and then they formed a, uh, a division to actually investigate. And so they moved forward from there. Interesting. Yeah, we've had several of these come through Tulsa uh, within the last few years. And I know there's an organization for retail investigators, yeah, for retail investigators, like loss prevention uh, professionals within like, you know, the Best Buy and or uh, grocery stores or whatever, um, or large gas station chains and, and things like that. So um, so what was the, do you have, are you, were you able to put together a total dollar amount of what was stolen um, or the amount that you traced? It was hard to pinpoint an exact amount on one thing because the funds were flowing in such a circle. But uh, I know that the eBay sales for one of the defendants was, you know, just over 38000 and then the other one um, would have been 608000 Now keep in mind, this was a, uh, 2009 through 2013, because we can only get records going back so far. Uh, the gift cards total about $394,000, and those were sold, what was sold on eBay and Plastic Jungle. Wow. So over a million dollars. Yeah, and literally it was just, it was going around and around, and these guys would, I guess, live off the proceeds, but it, it was funny how it got reinvested so much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Really messed I mean, I would love to have a total of, you know, what did uh, Store X lose? I mean, I'm sure they have totals, but they, they wouldn't be able to say it. this is the total that went to just computers. Right. So I, I think it would be really hard to quantify, but it was definitely upwards of a million. And were these guys, you know, you said that they reinvested a lot of the proceeds, which we'll just... I, I like that term. I think it's funny. Um, so like they were putting the money back in, were they living any kind of extravagant lifestyle or they, were they really just running? I mean, just really putting the money back in and then just living basically. I mean, you said an employee was living in the store or one of those was. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one was one, two of the defendants were father and son. Mm. So they just, live their lives, you know, not extravagant. I mean, they didn't drive fancy cars or anything. They just, this was their business. They had to be there probably 24 seven. So somebody had to li live there because somebody would come to the back door and that's where the sales would happen, you know, cause they wouldn't come in the front door <laughs> Yeah, and all that. Interesting. So did the two defendants that appealed their cases, did they succeed? Nope. The uh, convictions were upheld. That's awesome. And it was awesome uh, because they they proved money laundering using this tracing method and and how I helped them explain that. So they they actually said in the transcript that they they found my testimony helpful. <laughs> so so that was good. I, I'm glad it, it made a difference. Yeah. So you did testify on this case. I did. Did all five defendants go to trial or just a few? Or you yep, had all five? All five went. Okay. Yeah, we had three in one and two in the others, and so it was two trials. It was like repeat. Yeah. <laughs> but it was good. Yeah. That's really interesting because in a lot of our cases or cases that I've traced, oh, I guess I just haven't traced anything that had to do with 
uh, like inventory items like that. So that's really interesting, like the way that you trace the shipping label to eBay to PayPal and, and connected all of those dots. There was, yeah, there was another case that I had worked on. It was the second retail theft ring, but this one involves cell phones. These mm -hmm. uh, people would drive up and down I-25, which is the main interstate between, you know, Denver and Colorado Springs, and they would hit cell phone stores along the, the interstate, steal them, and then they would sell them on eBay and PayPal. So it was a similar process of tracing everything through, but cell phones have a I-N-E-I number that's unique to the phone and these fraudsters if you will when they would list them on ebay they listed the last six digits of that number and so i was like awesome i could trace this through it's great yes so good yeah because connecting those dots for um you know law enforcement and a da to prosecute beyond a reasonable doubt i mean you have to have those items to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt uh you know it makes it easy for the jury to understand yeah because uh i actually was doing a another like i was interviewed on a podcast just yesterday and we were talking about how accountants who and auditors who haven't really had much experience with law enforcement a lot of times they're very interested in what the general ledger says and what these accounting entries say but you have to trace it to cash like show how this individual benefited. And so essentially what you did was, I mean, on a very detailed level, this is how we know that these weren't legitimate sales. And um, so I think that's really important. And I, I, to me, that is the definition of tracing is that you're going to take one item and connect all of these dots showing how the benefit didn't go to the person who actually owned the product or owned the business. In addition to that, you have to have the, the couple items that the attorney or whoever can use to prove it all it went all the way through, but then you have to be able to summarize everything that went through. So that's yeah. true. And then for money laundering, you have to have specific item tracing usually as well, right? Yeah. So very, very interesting. Great case. So glad you shared it with us. Um, so I really appreciate your time chatting with me today. And if any of our listeners want to connect with you or learn more about your work, what is the best way for them to do so? send me an email. I will answer you. Awesome. Okay. Well, we'll make sure to put that in the show notes so they can connect with you. And you're on LinkedIn. I think I've seen quite a bit of you. I am. I'm very active on LinkedIn. Yeah. So make sure to follow Robin on LinkedIn and that's R-O-B-Y-N. I love the way you spell that. Robin Shaw. And uh, so anyway, yeah, this was just so, so great. Thanks for sharing with us and look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you for having me. It was definitely a pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Investigation Game. For more information on any of the topics brought up on this show, visit workmanforensics.com. If you enjoyed our show, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. You can also connect with us on any social media platform by searching Workman Forensics. If you have any questions or topic ideas, please email us at podcast at workmanforensics.com. Thank you.